Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. Welcome back. Mack Weldon is our original sponsor. Mack Weldon makes the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now. I always wear Mack Weldon socks when I podcast. Ken Kirsten, see? Very handsome. Thank you. But they are very handsome. They're very comfortable. They also smell great because they're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber which eliminates odor. I pay for them with my own money. That is the best endorsement I can make. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If for some reason you buy stuff and you do not like it, you can keep your money. I don't know how it works, but it does. 20% off if you use the offer code RECODE at MacWeldon.com. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a funny name. I am here with Ken Kirsten, who is the editor-in-chief of the New York Observer. Welcome, Ken. Peter, thank you for having me on your podcast. Thanks for coming. I reached out to you because I've known you for a while. And I think you are the only person I know who has supported and probably voted for Donald Trump. And I think we're supposed to reach out across party lines and and find people who are not like us and talk to them. I did vote for Donald Trump. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to presuppose, but I'm assuming since you work for Jared Kushner, who's his son-in-law, I've seen pictures of you on social media that indicate you support Trump. Um, you were the box at, at the RNC. So <laughs> all signs pointed to that, but I didn't want to presuppose. So thanks for coming on. We're in strange days. Donald Trump, hours ago, just, just visited the New York Times and held what was basically sort of a one-company press conference. Did you watch that? Or I guess watch the tweets that came out of that? No, I, I saw that it was on and then off and then on again. Uh, I haven't – I've been in a meeting before coming here, so I didn't see the results of it. But I, I imagine it would have been very fun to be a – a fly on the wall of that room. So you've got other work to do. You can't just in- enjoy the spectacle. I'm afraid I do. So let's talk about your job. So you edit The Observer. You've done that for since when? Since January 2013. So just finishing up four years. And there was a long string. Uh, so Jared Kushner bought it uh, a few years earlier. There were a long string of editors that came after he bought the paper. And then he brought in you. That's right. There was a lot of sport made that I was the sixth editor in the seven years uh, that Jared had owned it at the time I became editor. But now I am the second longest serving editor after the legendary Peter Kaplan, who was editor for 15 years. He's a very legendary editor, now deceased. People mourn him. I think a lot of people say that sort of the paper died with him. We could talk about that. But when, talk about how, how you came to the paper. How did Jared Kushner find you? Did you know him? I did know Jared. Jared's been a, a close personal friend. I'm, I'm a friend of his entire family. His father, Charlie, is, is my good friend um, since I think about 2000 or 2001. So by the time Jared hired me to run The Observer in 2013, I, I knew the whole family well for many years. And he was, what, I think he bought it when he was 25, right? So it was a few years, a few years after that. And what was his pitch to you? I was in politics at, at that point. I was, I was making TV commercials for uh, candidates and some corporate work too, but mostly for candidates. You didn't work for and Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, I'd worked for Rudy Giuliani for about eight years, and then after his presidential campaign, I, I served as COO of his presidential campaign, and when that failed humiliatingly, um, I went to work for a political consulting firm making making TV spots, and I made a ton of money and uh, wanted to commit Harry Carey every day of my life. Uh, that, that job was just not for me, but... You, you did not like um, being a well-paid political consultant? I hated it. I mean, better to be a well-paid one than a badly paid one, I guess, but... Uh, I hated the work, and um, Jared approached me uh, after Elizabeth Spires was was going to leave uh, the editor chair, and the, the timing wasn't wasn't quite perfect. Uh, but I said that if you can wait till I finish out the year, and uh, you know, 
in 2012, the, the way it works in politics is you sort of – you starve for uh, the odd number of years and, and make a ton and of money in the in. even number of years, especially the presidential years. So 2012 was one of those years when I was you know, looking at a big payday and I said, if you can wait, then, then I'm ready to, to And go. What, did, what did he want you to do with the paper? And, and the, the background is under the Peter Kaplan era, the, the Observer was this tiny, very small circulation, influential among Manhattan media – chattering classes that would satirize people like Donald Trump and Barry Diller uh, and people who were trying to strive their way up. It was kind of a more elevated gawker in a lot of ways or a, a descendant from spy. And it got the sense when Jared bought it, he didn't want that. And what did he tell you he wanted to do with it? Well, Jared didn't didn't have a ton of input into the the tone. That's you know he he has this reputation. Every, everything we write today, we have an editorial about uh, not being so quick to call people Nazi, and everybody instantly assumes that that Jared ordered that up. It's it's ridiculous. He's actually much less intrusive than just about any publisher I ever worked for. And you and I have worked for some of the same places. And I, I'd say without reservation that Jared Kushner is a an excellent publisher who respects the freedom of the editorial department. So he didn't he didn't really weigh in on tone and who we'd support and who we'd go after so much as that he wanted someone to edit the paper who was at least a little closer in worldview to himself. And I, I think that's the right of someone who, who owns a, and so a media what, operation. What, so describe Jared's worldview and I guess your, your, your worldview at the same time. Well, I think you'd have Jared on the podcast to hear about sure. his worldview. I'll, I'm happy to describe my worldview. Which is that I'm a an out conservative. You know, I'm I'm a Republican. I'm a, a conservative. Um, I'm not dogmatic. I I think you know when you said working for Jared Kushner, you have to vote for Trump. That's not true at all. I, I'd say I said I didn't I, want to presuppose. I, I might be the only one. I actually I just found out the other day I'm not the only uh, Observer editorial employee who voted for Trump. There there's at least one other. But I'd be so that, very that person surprised. came out to you. Yes, privately and actually uh -huh. swore me to secrecy because that's the kind of reputational damage. I mean, the reason you're having me on this show is because the thinking among our our sort of our class, our friends, is so unanimous that I think that whether you agree with that thinking or disagree, you you can see that it's unfair. I mean, the same day you asked me to come on the show, Peter. Um, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times asked me to have lunch for the same reason, that they basically don't know anybody else who's a Republican. Yeah. So back to what Jared Kushner said he wanted you to do when you, when you took over the paper. Because again, it was it, – the, the paper prior to him buying it was very reflective of, of not only sort of coastal liberal elite thinking but even a, a more rarefied strain of it. So if he says, look, I, I want to turn this into something different, did you have any reservations about trying to do that? No, I didn't have any reservations because um, as much as I adored Peter Kaplan's New York Observer, and I really did, I, I, uh, I edited it for syndication in the, in the mid-90s. I, mean, I don't think people even know that. I, I knew Peter Kaplan for decades. Um, but as much as I admired it and grew up you know, in the pre-internet era when you and I were sort of coming, coming up through the ranks, the New York Observer's off-the-record column was like the only way to figure out what was even happening, who had been hired, who had been fired, and, and why. Yeah, it was that and Keith Kelly. Yeah, that, that's right. The New York um, Post. But whether we had consciously changed direction or not, the, the, the ground had shifted beneath our feet. Um, you know, the New York Observer, for example, hasn't been the New York Observer for, for years. We, we are just Observer.com. We, we receive 18% of our traffic from New York State. So that's 92 from from other places. So whether we wanted to uh, in, ensure this shift or not, the, the shift had already taken place. And Jared brought in his brother-in-law, 
Joseph Meyer, who's our CEO, who runs the thing day to day and is doing an amazing job building the business. Um, but the, it was a very specific attempt by Joseph and Jared to broaden our, our audience because it was already telling us we, we need more and different kinds of content. So Jared brings you in. He's Donald Trump's son-in-law at the time. Donald Trump is already a national figure. He's talked about running for office. Did it, had it crossed your mind that he might mount a serious campaign for, for president? It had vaguely crossed my mind. You know, there was a trial run of sort of Trump-related scandal at The Observer. Um, we ran a story about uh, New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman a couple of years ago. I'm not sure you remember this, but it, it was a, a big kerfuffle in the media circles um, because Schneiderman was at that time suing Donald Trump over uh, Trump University. And our story uh, was, was very critical of Eric Schneiderman and came under intense uh, fire, you know, as thought to be log rolling for, for Trump. In fact, the story, which was about 8,000 words long, was 100% accurate. Even Schneiderman's office never asked for a correction. People who, who despised Donald Trump were never able to find a single thing in it that was uh, incorrect. And, you know, now that the matter's been, been settled, it, it kind of doesn't matter anymore. But giant chunks of the lawsuit that we maintained in our article would never make it to trial. In fact, never made it to trial and, and couldn't have made it to trial because they were, they were not filed uh, within the And, and your statute. point is, is that, is, is what? My point is that we already knew that, that anything we did would be faced with extra scrutiny. So my point is that I didn't know that Donald Trump would run for president. I didn't know that he would win the primary. And I certain did, certainly didn't know he'd be the next president of the United States. But I did know that whatever we said was going to be uh, analyzed uh, to within a fraction of its, of its life. And I made the decision back during the Schneiderman kerfuffle just to ignore it, to, to cover Trump like I was going to cover anybody else. You know, when there were 17 Republican candidates, my thinking was, look, we, we can't be unbiased here. Let's, let's just try to, to keep our opinion coverage to an absolute minimum. So he and announced he, in 2015 he's running. Right. Uh, do you talk to Jared about it at the time? No. I mean, I, I talked to him in the course of because Jared's obsessed with politics and we talk every day. So, you know, it was like to the degree of, oh, man, did you hear what, what this candidate said about that? But it wasn't a news coverage. It was more just the way you'd, you'd BS with a friend, the right. way I might talk to so you. So he doesn't say, how are you going to cover my father-in-law? Exactly. He, he never did. He never put his thumb on the, on the scale um, for that. He never asked for us to be uh, gentler on him. You know, we, we take a lot of abuse. If we run something that's critical of, of Hillary or could even be arguably positive toward Donald Trump, we take abuse for it. But in fact, we ran some very tough columns about Donald Trump. Uh, we recruited John Reinish, who's a, a partner at uh, SKD Knickerbocker, and wrote some scathing stuff. You might remember that we have a staffer called Dana Schwartz who, yep. who ran a, a very powerful open letter asking Jared to answer for um, what she perceived as Donald Trump's uh, anti-Semitism. We, we ran very tough stuff. But, you know, my, my feeling about being in the media is you just got to do your best to do a good job and, and ignore the stuff. I'm not on Twitter. I, I never Google myself. I try really hard not to let people get in my head. You are on Facebook. Why not Twitter? Because I, I'm on Facebook because I want to see my friends' kids when they, you know, have a first day of school, and I want them to see mine. It's it's a it's a place where people who know me and know what I'm about can share their stories and and vice versa. I'm, I'm not on Twitter because I I don't want my thinking. You, know, you spend forty plus years. I'm forty eight years old, so you spend forty something years forming your opinion and informing yourself so that you can you can see the world 
a certain way and then, you know, five guys you don't know attack you and suddenly you go, oh my God, do I, do I need to think differently? I, I, I am open to, to new ideas constantly and I'm constantly confronted with new ideas in the real world. But I don't think 140 characters at a time by people who, who don't know me and don't know what I'm about is, is a good way to formulate opinions. It, it's interesting, right? Because, because I mean, you can certainly, there's a lot of downsides to Twitter and I think people like myself probably overuse it. But Donald Trump says it's, it's one of his favorite tools. I think a lot of people think that really helped him to sort of propelled his candidacy in a lot of ways. I mean, Facebook in other ways, but at least him is, he's talking about it as sort of an open megaphone for him to reach lots of people. That doesn't appeal to you. It doesn't appeal to me because I'm not running for office. Donald Trump has 10 million followers and, uh, you know, he gets to say something and have 10 million people react positively, You've negatively, got a et too. Um, yeah, no, and that's, I use it. We've got advertisers. We're going to hear from them right now. We'll be right back. SoFi is a new kind of finance company, and they're all about helping their members get ahead and find success. It's a simple idea. You work hard to build your career, so you should be able to save some money on the student loans that helped you get there. In fact, SoFi refinances federal and private student loans, and that lets its members save an average of $316 a month. It's a lot of money. And aside from student loan refinancing, SoFi has a bunch of other options that can help you reach your financial goal. They can offer you mortgages for as little as 10% down. They can offer low-rate personal loans. They even offer wealth management. That's great rates, zero fees, great customer service, and an awesome set of member perks. That's the SoFi way. Sounds good. Learn more at SOFI.com. That's SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. We'd like to thank Lenovo for supporting this podcast. The cloud is no longer just the place where you back up your phone. Businesses need the cloud to expand their computing power. And thanks to Lenovo Cloud Data Services, they can increase or decrease server capacity and horsepower on demand. It's a big deal because you no longer need rooms full of servers. But your team can still test applications and stage products just like they do today. You just don't need the expensive hardware. Lenovo servers are number one in reliability and performance because this kind of flexibility is worthless if the service isn't there when you need it. Lenovo will even help you partner with your existing vendors to create a smooth transition. Learn how Lenovo is transforming the data center at lenovo.com slash data center. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company everyone can afford. With the Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs, which are GIFs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. This is the same stuff you'd find on more expensive sites. It's just way cheaper. If you subscribe, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. That means if you're working on a personal project, a commercial project, you pay zero royalties. You keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com recode. That's videoblocks.com slash recode for this exclusive offer. Back here with Ken Kerson, editor of the New York Observer. We were just discussing your, your lack of interest in Twitter, which I think is fairly healthy. Let me go back to the work you were doing at the Observer over the last couple of years. Um, I think you did tack back and forth in sort of how you wanted to write or cover Trump. Um, I think there was at one point where you said, you said earlier, we're just going to go ahead and cover him. And then at some point uh, last year, you guys said, actually, we're not going to cover him anymore. We're, we're done trying to cover him. That's not exactly right. It, it, at the beginning, when there were 17 Republican candidates and uh, unovercomable conflict of interest, I made the decision and communicated it um, before we'd written anything that we were not going to cover him in our opinion pieces at all. And with news, we'd, we'd cover him straight. You know, he's a New Yorker, a big New York personality. 
We cover New York, so we we cover him straight. And then, as more and more uh, Republican candidates either dropped out or he won more primaries, it became untenable. It just wasn't it wasn't possible to have a newspaper that was covering what was going on in the world of politics without um, including uh, opinion pieces. So we evolved to cover him, including opinion, um, and that included opinion that was favorable toward him and uh, unfavorable, and toward his opponents. So there was last spring you you worked on or gave input. You you tell me what the right verb is to use on a, a speech he delivered uh, to APAC, sort of American Israeli Jewish uh, group. That became a story, and then I think after that, you, didn't you guys make a pronouncement that said we're actually we're done covering him? No, we didn't. We never made a pronouncement that we're done covering, and we we made we made a policy that uh, no one would assist anyone's uh, campaign, which was basically a one man policy. It was it was m- me saying I would no longer uh, agree to look at drafts of speeches or anything like had that. Had you had you done that in beyond that APAC speech? Uh, no, I never really. I mean, he, the, the thing about the APAC speech, it was like the first set speech he gave. You know, he was famous for never using a teleprompter right. and speaking off the cuff, so, so uh, there hadn't been opportunities. But after the APAC speech, not only did I not look at speeches, I became extra careful about just, you know, not even being willing to sort of give my opinion as a former professional political consultant, you know, about much of anything. I was, go- I was going through old websites via Google, and, and there's an interview with you from HuffPo at the time that story came out. You said, well, there's nothing wrong with this. I help all sorts of people politically, I help politically different stripes. You said, there's nothing, there's nothing to see here. I did nothing wrong. Yeah, I, I still think that. You still um, think that. I, I mean, I understand the sensitivity, um, but, you know, look, we endorsed Donald Trump for the uh, Republican nomination in New York when there were just three candidates at that point, and there was this tremendous uproar of, uh, you know, outrage but we also endorsed Hillary Clinton. You know, I'm proud that we endorsed uh, both of the eventual nominees. That's you know part of a, what a newspaper does with its endorsements is is sort of assert its relevance. Um, you try and do uh, unpredictable uh, endorsements sometimes as a matter of principle, but in general, you're trying to suggest that you have the ability to carry a favorite candidate across the finish line. So the fact is that was a perfect example. We endorsed uh, the eventual Republican nominee, the eventual Democratic nominee. And the latter got zero attention. The the former became this, you know, point of outrage where where uh, one of our writers quit in in disgust. And I just think that's that's just silly. So you're okay doing that, but you stopped doing it because you thought it's easier to sort of run the paper, not weighing in. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I I, I mean, I, I do think as I look when when this all started to when the campaign started to really get going, I actually consulted. I'm, I was on the board of a, a journalism school, and I consulted with with people who I really respect, who have decades in this business. And the word that kept coming up was unprecedented. People would say, well, if you look at William Randolph Hearst and, you know, stuff that was so long ago, it wasn't really relevant to, to our age. So there isn't a great playbook for when, you're, when your publisher is not only the son-in-law, but possibly the, the closest advisor to uh, a candidate, especially a candidate so prone to media attention. So yeah, the practicality became that it just it just made sense that I, I should have nothing to do with it. Um, but at the same time, you know, some of our employees came wearing Hillary buttons or shirts or something. There are some newsrooms that would absolutely not prevent that. You see BuzzFeed sends around its memo every few weeks saying, you know, you may not post on your personal Twitter or anything. See, I, I don't, I don't really feel that way. That. I don't feel that way. I, you know, Ben Bradley famously instructed his reporters at the Washington Post that they they ought not to vote. I think that's that's crazy. I think people yeah, are proud of that beings. up until recently. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I think you're a human being first and a, a journalist second, and maybe even third or fourth. 
So you said Jared is is maybe the closest advisor, one of the closest advisors. Uh, there's a big profile of him in Forbes that describes him that way. The narrative, both in that Forbes story and other stories I've read, was that this initially Jared wasn't that involved in the campaign, and then at some point over the course of the campaign got got very involved. Did you see that from the outside or from your vantage point? Well, Jared's big skill is uh, how quickly he learns things. Um, that's that's really his greatest strength, and. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the reasons he gets underestimated. You know, he also happens to be soft spoken, and and then there's this other sort of structural things. So, you know, he's he's very he's very young, and he's handsome, and he's married to a beautiful blonde daughter of uh, Donald Trump. So um, it, it's it's very easy for the chattering Twitter class to dismiss him. But they're they're making a big mistake when they do, and I think they found that out the hard way during this election. The guy is whip smart and a brilliant strategist. So. So when did when did you see him getting was because I think at one point he was he was sort of downplaying his role. Now again, if you go with the Forbes story, it says back in November he had a conversion moment. He went out into the crowd and, and then for, yeah, became from, involved in the from campaign. From my point of view, he was always involved in an intense way as a family member. So he always had that intensity of sort of rooting for a family member. But I, I think as he started to realize just how complex national politics can be from a, a tactical and strategic point of view. That's when he started to get more hands-on. Um, I don't have perfect information on that because I, I wasn't around, um, despite what you may have read. Um, so yeah. So how does that work? Does he? I mean, you've seen him in the halls. Um, no, he, he's he. That's not true. He's, no? he, Jared is almost never at the Observer. Um, Joseph is our CEO and makes the day-to-day decisions. My big interaction with Jared, as far as the paper goes, has been the editorial board. You know, our, our editorials that we write in the in the voice of the publisher. Is, is that a weekly or it's regular weekly. meeting? Yeah, we so tend they tend to do two meeting with him. Yeah, they're, they're they're not always face to face. Sometimes they are, but they're often by email or phone. So during the campaign, then, is he talking to you about the campaign? Is he asking for input and no, formally Like I informally? said, I, I, I made the decision after the, the APAC right. um, stuff to, to just not, not discuss it, and he respected that. Uh, so, but, but prior to that, that was happening? Not so much. No. No. He, you know, I'd, I'd watch and see what I saw, see what you saw, and um, sort of feel his, his hand in it. But you feel like your access to Jared and the decision-making that's going on within the Trump campaign is basically the same as mine or anyone else I would else say the it's, it's maybe a little enhanced because we just – we talk more. And also, you know, I, I got access to a few things. I got to go to the first debate, for example, because I know Jared. I got to – You were at the RNC. I was at the RNC. But I was at the DNC too. And that's just but like the endorsement. you were in the Trump box at the RNC. That's exactly right. But like I said at the time, I'll go in any box anyone invites me to. I saw you at a box this this a uh, couple months ago. Did you? Oh, Beyonce. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Beyonce. So, no, but that was not a scandal uh, to be in the Beyonce box. You know, it's it's like, to me, it's much ado about nothing. If people want to write articles about where I sit at a particular convention, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm a journalist. I'll, I'll take whatever access someone will give me. And if Hillary Clinton would have let me sit in her family box, I would have been there in two seconds. And I did go to the DNC, and I, I broke some news there. So the Observer uh, shut down its print edition right after the election. That's right. Um, yeah. What's your sense of what happens to the publication now? The Observer's business is stronger than it's ever been by far. It's always been for its 30-year history. Now, just about 30 years, a sort of a, a, a toy for rich people to sort of get their point of view about art and real estate and, every, and culture out there. Um, you know, its original owner, Arthur Carter, um, who happens to be a great artist himself, by the way. And, uh, uh, not everybody knows that. Um, but uh, he's into sculpture, right? Yeah, yeah he's yeah. a sculptor, and and he's fantastically talented. You know, he wanted a, a publication to get his point of view and those of people he respects out there, and that's exactly what Jared wanted. 
Um, Do you think he still wants that now? I don't know. I think Jared's platform is so much uh, more expansive than the Observer. But in the meantime, the Observer has become a real business. We, you know, when I when I took over in January 2013, we had 3.1 million page views in the month of January uh, from one million unique users. In October of this year, with 20 million page views from about seven plus million. I actually, so, I actually did some basic research before this. So Comscore's got a much lower number, but that always happens with, yeah, with internal I, I, versus external. Right, numbers, but did you but, see a similar multiple? Yeah, yeah, it went up. Yeah, because you know Quantcast, which is like Comscore, right. um, we were 3,698 when I took over, and we were like 275 yeah, it had, when I came here. It had here. no web presence right. in the Kaplan era. Right, and the Kaplan era is virtually none, and then in subsequent editors, it was it was built, but we've we focused all of our attention. So, on so that. what has Jared told you he wants to do? I guess not. Has he told you what he wants to do with it? He has not. But like I said, Joseph is is the CEO, and we'll we'll be making those strategic decisions. I'm sure in consultation with Jared and the rest of the family. Assuming you're allowed to just do what you want with it, like continue on. Is it, how do you want to use the? What do you want to do with that platform? I, I want to do what we've been do, doing. You know, I, I think we bring a smart, sophisticated take on the four areas we cover. We've we've tried to be really strategic about surrendering areas. Like you're never going to see a you know observer sports column because there's so many great places that do it already. I, I happen to love sports, but it's it's just not something where we have any daylight. You know, um, but in the areas the the four verticals that we have where we really have authority. Um, we're just going to cover them from a, the perspective of what a smart, informed, affluent person needs to know. Do you think that the way you approach the, the paper is going to be different now in a Trump era than it would have been in a Clinton era, or you, you're in the same track regardless? I don't think it'll be it'll be different uh, based on who the president is. I, th- I think we'll 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 cover it aggressively. Um, you know, I mean, Trump's not even president yet, and and the the amount of outrage. It's stunning to me. Um, I've been through many elections where the, the candidate I favored didn't win, and I, I felt hopeful when, when President Obama won election in 2008. I had, I had you know, not only not supported him, but I had I'd worked very hard for Rudy Giuliani that year. And yet when, when President Obama was elected, I was very hopeful and very excited uh, for the country. So, I, I so had, can, do you understand the difference between this and John Kerry losing in 2004? why people are are so upset and confused and scared if you're asking me do i think they're they're justified in being as as terrified as they are my answer is no um i understand that that there's anxiety because there always is when when someone who doesn't share your worldview is going to be uh in charge of things um but i i don't think the the level of terror and hysteria is justified by anything uh donald trump has done so, I mean, if you're Muslim, for instance, and he says, I want to have a complete and total shutdown of Muslim immigration in the country, and repeatedly uses Muslims as, as, as sort of a point of attack in the campaign, wouldn't you imagine that would be un- unnerving to you, plus anyone else who's worried about their fate? Well, I don't, I don't want to get in the position of defending sure. you know, what Donald Trump does. I, I'm not a part of his, his operation. Um, I think he not only backed off of that statement, but, but sort of repudiated it uh, later in the Later in the still on his website, campaign. Google it. So, if you're asking me if if I agree with that policy, no, of course I don't. Um, but if you're asking me whether two months before someone becomes president, you know <laughs> whether it's, it makes sense to be in terror, um, I, I just don't. I don't. Nothing I've seen from what Trump's done, including uh, any of his appointments, terrifies me. Just doesn't. Peter Thiel, one of his backers, says you should you should take Trump seriously, not literally. 
Yeah, I think I think that's well put. I, I think you know uh, uh, Donald Trump has a way of getting his point across, and yet when you read a transcript of what he said, it's it's not it's not the king's English. It's not a or when someone says, "How is uh, this different than Japanese internment camps?" and he says, "You tell me." Right? If you when you read that, and I don't know what context you would put it in to make it sound better, it sounds like he's he's okay with internment camps. Not to me. I mean, I oppose internment camps with every fiber of my my being. If if he were to go in that direction toward Japanese people or Muslim Americans or anyone else, I'd, I'd be on the front lines protesting with everybody else. I just I just don't think he ever would. And and as a, as a newspaper editor, when he says, "I want to open up the libel laws." In, during the campaign, do you at some point tap Jared in the shoulder and go, does, does he really mean that? I never asked Jared about um, what his father-in-law feels about the libel laws, but I can tell you that Jared himself is a strong defender of the First Amendment, um, and he gets it as deeply as anybody. I think it's a huge advantage that the president-elect is being advised by someone who actually has owned a newspaper. And that's not uh, – I can on this one, I can give you uh, chapter and verse because it's not just rhetoric from Jared. It's – you know, we get sued all the time just like any other newspaper and uh, we don't settle. You know, the, the guy – one of the owners of Scores sued us for a true story and uh, – you know, many times offer to make it go away if we just run a correction or take the story off our website, et cetera. And we we fought it all the way all the way to decision. We won. Uh, that that took courage for a publisher to fund uh, fund a lawsuit like that, and that's happened a bunch of times. People, I mean, you work for a publication. You've you've worked at others. I've been employed by publishers who aren't that willing to defend their their uh, editor's freedom. So today, during the Times had this extraordinary press conference with him. And via Twitter, I read that someone asked him about the First Amendment and, and what was his attitude toward that. And he said something effective. You'll, you'll like what you, you hear or something to that effect. And I think if you were a reporter or someone who cared about the First Amendment, you'd, like, you'd prefer him to say, I'm a strong supporter of the First Amendment. Yeah, but that's, that, that's and, like and for, all and this and stuff you, with the – And you're saying, no, that's just, that's just verbiage. I, I, exactly. I think that's, that's the exact same trap that, that happens with this David Duke stuff or um, – you know these these lunatic Nazis who are uh, suddenly emboldened um, by whatever's in the air. I I don't think that when you write a script, he should have said, "I'm a strong supporter of the First Amendment," or he should have denounced David Duke in f- three seconds, not eight seconds. I don't I don't think it, it makes sense to play that game. Well, but he I mean this is one of the things that unnerves lots of people, right? He he denounces them if you ask them about him. Meanwhile, he's using Twitter to to attack the the cast of Hamilton or the New York Times. He's not using it to d- denounce Richard Spencer and the, these freaks in right. Washington, so if he, so I never heard of Richard Spencer. I, I follow. I was named the Jewish Journalist of the Year two years ago. I'm highly identified as a Jewish journalist. I am uh, obsessed with the idea that brown shirts are about to kick down my door any second. I follow this stuff as closely as anyone. I never heard of Richard Spencer till this week. Yeah. So. You're expecting this guy who who just ran a presidential campaign and won it to know the names of of every every nudnik neo Nazi out there. No, it's, but it's but ridiculous. but this is, but but over the last couple of weeks in particular, uh, his association with Bannon, Steve Bannon, and and Breitbart, and the fact that Breitbart has sort of winked and nudged at these folks, hasn't kicked them off their platform. You know, if you go to Donald Trump, eventually, and I think he said it today too. He said, "I repudiate it. I disavow it." But you'd think if he's got time to tweet. Four times he deleted one of them about Hamilton this weekend. One of them could have been, by the way, I hate Nazis. Well, maybe if you were elected president, you you would. That's I how was you born would, outside this country, so I cannot be. I didn't know president. that about you, Peter. Are you I, even thirty five? I mean, at least I am, right? I am yeah. over thirty five. Um, 
Look, I, I think that's crazy. Whatever you tweet, by definition, you don't tweet about something else that's really important. There's a genocide going on in Syria right now. So if you tweet about Hamilton, it doesn't mean you don't care about Syria. On, on my personal Facebook, I wrote about how much I hate Time Warner cable, right? It annoys me. I think you're my Facebook friend, so maybe you saw this. So I wrote, you know, Time Warner didn't show up for their appointment or whatever. And one of my friends says, oh, you have a lot to say about Time Warner, but nothing to say about the Steve Bannon appointment. Yeah. I see where your priorities are. And I'm going, give me a break. This is, this is lunacy that, that every time Ken, you... I'm, 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 I'm one of your Facebook friends that checked with you weekly to see when you were going to repudiate uh, uh, Trump or elements of the campaign. You, you put out a, a Friday sort of Sabbath benediction weekly. And I kept waiting for you to say, and thus I can no longer work for Jared Kushner because I find this or this or this repellent or abhorrent. I'm upset about this part of the campaign. So well, you never did. I never had reason to say that. I'm, I'm proud to work for Jared Kushner, and I was proud to vote for Donald Trump. Um, when you talked to Brian Stelter this weekend, you said, uh, um, I think uh, the traditional press, mainstream press, should be embarrassed of the work they did. They should have been fired. They should resign. Is there a whole swath of the press you're thinking about? Is there a type of journalist you're thinking about? The, the type of, yeah, there is. There, the type of journalist I'm thinking about is the, the type who, because of the echo chamber of his or her social group, never saw this coming, um, despite the incredible amounts of warnings. I mean, how could you have seen Brexit take place and not seen that Trump was a, a real candidate who had a real shot? The pollsters who bungled this thing so badly, how are they going to get work? And they will. And they'll, none of them will resign. None of them will will pay any uh, career By price. the way, some of those pollsters work for the RNC, right? The, the, the week, a couple days before the election, the RNC gave a briefing to reporters that here's how we're going to lose the electoral college. Absolutely. I think some of the worst offenders uh, were conservatives. I, and this wasn't a partisan uh, shot. The thing I said on Stelter wasn't, wasn't a partisan shot at all. I, th I think some of the worst offenders um, include people at the National Review who just couldn't see it because their friends uh, <laughs> weren't among those great unwashed in I Michigan mean, and Wisconsin and right? Ohio. Because the, the poll said Hillary and, and Trump are, are neck and neck and there would be a, they would get closer and farther apart, but they were 5 to 6% apart most of the time, which meant that a big chunk of the electorate wanted to vote for Trump. Um, so that could not have been a surprise. I think it's still a shock to that he was elected. You know, the horse race of uh, who's winning is, is not really if, – if you work in politics when, – when I decided to come back to journalism after working in politics, there, there was a, a certain amount of skepticism, including among my friends. I, I think Gawker wrote something about how you know, once you go to politics, you, you sort of lose your, your journalism card, uh, you know, whether it's me or Diane Sawyer who worked for Nixon or George Stephanopoulos who worked for Clinton, that you – you, you sort of lost your, your right to weigh in. And I, I feel exactly the opposite. And I'm totally consistent on this. Around the time you and I first met in the late 90s, I wrote an article about how James Kramer was being attacked because he was a hedge fund trader at the same time he was writing about stocks for smart money. And I said, that, this is bullshit. I want my guys uh, who are writing about money to, to have experience. And that's you want the same skin with, in the game. Yeah. And that's the same with politics. I, I think that part of the value I bring to my writing is that I know how it's actually made. And this polling question is a, a perfect example of it. I, I was never really tuned into, you know, a 45 to 42% lead because that's, that's nonsense. The, the poll number that most impressed me during the, the entire campaign, when I, when I most strongly felt that Trump was going to win, is when I saw some public polling that was in uh, way buried down in, the, in what are called the crosstabs, where the, it had shifted from originally uh, 
some majority of, of like 50 to 45 had said they want someone who shares my values over a strong leader. And then a couple weeks later, that reversed, and a strong leader became more important than shares my values. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, Trump's got a real shot here. And so that's Spill a, it out. Why, why, well, there's why all the light people, go out for you then? There's all, there's, there's all these people who are wringing their hands going, I don't understand how, how he won when all these people say he's not qualified. But they weren't saying qualified to be leader as something important to them. It's like if you ask all of these people, do you oppose global warming? And they all say, yeah, global warming is horrible. And if 90% of the people say global warming is horrible, then you, can't be, you shouldn't be shocked when someone who doesn't care about global warming wins because the f- question you forgot to ask them is how important is it to you? And if they say, well, global warming is my 30th most important issue, then it doesn't matter if 90% of them think it's important, right? Because the other 29 things like feeding their family and having a job and paying for college or whatever are more important. And so that's that's why I just I never believed all these leads. You know, you've you've got polling that was never really outside the margin of error and didn't have baked into it that Trump had managed to find all these guys who don't even get polled called because they they don't like to vote and didn't bake in that that there was no way her turnout machine was going to to replicate Obama. The, the reason I said that, that there should be mass resignations among journalists is because I just think they, they spoke to each other and did not see these very clear signs that, that she was in trouble. I'll, I'll give you another one, Peter. Um, and this, this was only revealed by WikiLeaks, which I saw the same time as, as, as everybody else did. So if I was Hillary's consultant, if I, was, if I were um, among her team, I would have been very troubled by how hard it was for her to shake Bernie Sanders. Right, this guy won. What was it? Eighteen contested. She just uh, logged through the summer with him. Yeah, she, so that would have concerned me a lot that she could not shake off the seventy-two-year-old socialist, socialist um, Jew from Vermont. Right. So, but then when WikiLeaks started coming out in October, and I found out she not only couldn't shake him, she couldn't shake him in a fixed fight. It's it's like it's like what if when Rocky's manager was setting him up against all those you know goofs just to build up his record before Clubber Lang. And then Rocky lost to one of them. You know, that would be very troubling. And Hillary Clinton not only could barely shake Bernie Sanders, but she couldn't shake him when she was being given the answers in debates and when she was being given information by the DNC when, when the superdelegates were in the bag. That's, that's a very troubling problem. And if I were on her team, I would have been going, we got a problem with our candidate. Are you troubled by, by the fact that the, the outgoing NSA director says, and many others say, WikiLeaks is part of a, a Russian hack trying to affect the election? I, I, it seems like that's remarkably undercovered. Yeah, no, if that turns out to be true, it's incredibly troubling. Um, I mean, you've got, you've got another, most of the American intelligence establishment saying it's the case. If, if that turns out to be true, it's very troubling. It doesn't undo the point I just made. It's still, you know, I, I yeah, think... There's separate points. Right. I, I think it's still true that, uh, you know, whatever's been revealed. But I think it's very troubling if, if foreign countries are interfering in our elections. Absolutely. Well, you tee off. You can be a media critic. Um, beyond the fact that uh, you think most of the establishment media blew this badly... Um, now that you've been in media since 2013 as an editor, is there one other thing you want us chattering classes to fix or change? Well, I appreciate that you're having me on your show. You know, I mean, you know, like I told you, uh, you, are, you are, I believe, the first Republican we've had on. You know, first out I mean, Republican. What, what, is, what does that say? Um, I appreciate that the editor of the New York Times uh, reached out to me. I appreciate that Brian Stelter had me on his show for the first time. And, you know, I, I think it'll do the, the Republic a lot of good if more varied voices get on. You know, we, we talk constantly to the point of uh, nauseousness about diversity, 
but we don't really reflect this giant swath of people like me who are like, you know, sort of balding middle-aged guys without a college degree from the Midwest, and we get ignored. Yeah, but I think you could argue that Republicans, that, that also a whole swath of people have been represented on conventional media for quite a long time. And he's usually a, a left and a right, and this person thinks that, and that person, and this Nazis believe Jews don't exist, shouldn't have the right to exist. And then someone says, well, it's, we should argue that point. No, you shouldn't that's an argue the point, point of whether, uh, whether Jews should uh, have the right to exist. That's, that's not Power worth, on. I don't consider global warming and Holocaust denial to be the same thing. That's, that's an offensive point that you just made, Peter. But I, I don't agree with you that all points get heard. I, in The Observer, we wrote many times during the campaign. And that's, that's why I think The Observer's coverage was so excellent and earned a lot of readers, is that we were saying this stuff not in postmortem. We were saying it during it. We were saying it this summer, where we pointed out that CNN often would have a quote-unquote balance panel, where there'd be a host who's clearly anti-Trump, and then two Democrats, and then Jeffrey a, Lord. A never, uh, Jeffrey Lord on the pro-Trump side, and then a never-Trump Republican. So the effect was four... Hillary people versus one Trump person. And that happened over and over. That setup was like the way CNN set up its, its summer. And that's not balanced. That's not filling, serving the needs of the, of the viewership. Yeah, I think the counter to that right, would be the, the amount of airtime that Trump got just to be speaking live. Yeah, no, but to complain Unbalanced about that, um, to complain about that is is ridiculous. That's his skill. His skill is being enough of a showman and being enough of a, a wild, unpredictable, uh, where you can't look away. That's like saying it's it's unfair. This guy's a great debater. Or it's unfair. That woman's a great fundraiser. Those are the skills it takes to win a modern campaign. And if Trump has mastered this ability to to earn free media, spending less than half of what Hillary did. And then that's to his credit, right? So this is a question I've asked many people who've sat where you're sitting throughout the last year. Do you think that what Trump has done, that this is a, uh, is a playbook for other candidates in the future, or is he, is he a one-off? I think he's sui generis. You know, I, I, I was thinking about that um, because everybody is trying to figure out the next Trump. You know, it's like, you know, when, when maybe, the West Coast offense the wins. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, and I think, you know, Mark Cuban was an example of a guy who was sort of trying to do it during the campaign. Um, I think it's really hard to do. And I think that just as I told you earlier that, that Jared was gravely underestimated as a strategist, I think Trump is very underestimated as a guy who has a, an almost supernatural sense of what's going out there in the Republic. You know, like just just think of his how easily he dispatched of Jeb Bush, a very formidable politician from a, an unstoppable dynasty. When you think of a hundred million dollars in ad spending on Jeb Bush's side, and weigh that, I'm making a, a hand gesture of scales for your for your podcast. Very good. You think of one hundred million dollars of ad spending on one side, and just the words low energy on the other side. That's literally a hundred million dollar insult. Just those two words basically undid. Jeb Bush's campaign, and that he was able to do it over and over again, lion Ted, crooked Hillary, by himself, not, not a team of advisors, you know, by himself thinking of, uh, of these things, these quick phrases that could dispatch of an opponent. It's, it's impressive, but, but there it's are other, There are other quick-witted people out in the world. Sure. There's other people who've had a lot of TV exposure. So if that's the model, it seems like other people could replicate it, unless there's something specific yeah, to it. It takes a lot of different things, though. It's, it's not just – you can't just be clever. I mean, uh, Robin Williams is on the, the wall here at uh, the stand-up club where we're recording this podcast. Even in an age where a reality show TV show host is going to be our 45th president, 
I don't think just a quick insult. I mean, people people often bring it. up Alec Baldwin as sort of a counterweight. He could, he maybe he could do that. He's sort of ideologically opposed. He's very smart. He's been on TV a lot. A lot of people like him. Right, but even Ronald Reagan had a long list of of real achievement. Even as an actor, he was leading, you know, leading the union. He was governor of the biggest biggest state. He had all of those sort of country tour as the GE spokesman. I think the sort of idea that you could just uh, you know, present well and suddenly leap to the fours that dismisses just what a special candidate this guy was. Um, I don't normally use notes, but I took some today. I wanted to just ask you one last question here because it struck me as such an odd sentence from Trump about your boss, Jared Kushner, at the Times uh, Confab today. He said, Jared Kushner could make peace between Israel and Palestine. Plausible? I, I think he's referring to Jared's uh, diplomatic skills more than uh, more than his, his sort of Middle East expertise. You don't think he's going to be his envoy? Um, I would be very surprised if that happened. I don't know that we, we solved any issues today. I don't think that was probably the intent, but we at least had a discussion, so that's good. It's not Israel and Palestine. It's Ken Kirsten and Peter Kafka. I appreciate your time, Ken. I appreciate yours, Peter. Thank you for having me on your show. If you guys like listening to this, there's lots more of this stuff. There's a year of this stuff over on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. There's stuff from Kara Swisher and Lauren Good as well. There's a whole slew of this stuff. You can go find it. Thank you to our excellent sponsors, Mac Weldon, Lenovo, and Videoblocks. And we will see you guys back next week with another great interview. We've got Stephen Dubner from Freakonomics on. We'll see you then.